and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is February 10th, 2023, and it is my honor and pleasure to be here with Ahmed Abuznaid and Diala Shemas. I'm going to do quick introductions and then we'll get right into it. And for folks who are joining us, the title that I have at least temporarily given to this podcast is Lawfare in Action, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights as a Case Study. I try to make these catchy. I'm not good at coming up with titles. Um, so quickly, the, the bios. Um, so Ahmed Abuznaid is the executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, otherwise known as USCPR. Um, the U.S. Campaign, um, Ahmed, co before joining the U.S. Campaign, Ahmed co-founded the Florida-based Dream Defenders after the killing of Trayvon Martin, serving as legal and policy director and COO during his time there. Ahmed went on to lead the National Network for Arab American Communities as the executive director from 2017 to 2019. Welcome, Ahmed. Hey, thank you for having me, Laura. And alongside Ahmed, we have Diala Shamas. Diala is a senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights, CCR, where she works on challenging government and law enforcement abuses perpetrated under the guise of national security, both in the U.S. and abroad. Prior to joining CCR, she was a clinical supervising attorney and lecturer in law at Stanford Law School and a senior staff attorney supervising the CLEAR that's Creating Law Enforcement Accountability and Responsibility Project at CUNY School of Law. Welcome, Diala. And Diala, you are muted. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so thank you both for being here. So I've invited Ahmed and Diala here today to discuss the lawsuit that was filed by the Jewish National Fund against the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. This was back in 2019. This lawsuit was actually dismissed by a U.S. federal judge in March 2021. We're going to talk about all of that. Um, but the 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 bottom line is that that has now been appealed and oral arguments were heard last month, January 2023. We're going to talk about that too. And overall, what we're going to talk about with this case is, is what it what it's really about, what is underlying this case, what arguments are being, being made about it and in it, and what it has to say about the efforts by, by pro-Israel or pro-Israeli impunity forces to instrumentalize and weaponize U.S. laws to target and suppress Palestinian activism and solidarity more broadly. So we are going to just dive right in. Um, Ahmed, I want to start with you, and I want you, for the sake of this audience who maybe cares a lot about lawfare, we've done a lot of podcasts and webinars about lawfare, uh, but may not be familiar with the U.S. campaign. So can you introduce the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights and its work, please? Absolutely. So the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights was founded uh, just about 21 years ago um, by a bunch of folks in the U.S., including Palestinians in the U.S., um, that wanted to see a future where um, the U.S. would no longer uh, financially, diplomatically, and militarily support uh, the occupation and ethnic cleansing going on in Palestine at the hand of the Israelis. And so folks concerned with their tax dollars, with their elected officials, endorsing and supporting um, what's now being um, rightly called an apartheid system uh, was something that these folks set out a vision and a mission um, to end. And so that is why we're around. We want for U.S. tax dollars to be utilized responsibly. We want for our foreign policy, which according to this administration is to be centered around human rights, to actually apply to the Palestinian people as well. And so we're Palestinian-led um, we're able to work with folks from the grassroots to the hill, um, and we really are, um, you know, hopefully a part of a movement that's seeing some impact, but greater impact to come in these next few years. Um, excited to be here, Laura, and we'll get into some of the, the in-depth conversations in a few. Fantastic. That's a great way to start off. So now, Diala, I want to come to you, and I'm, I'm right away off the back and give you permission to go on a little bit longer with this answer. Because what I want you to do is run down the nitty gritty of what people know about need to know about this case. And I will also say, as you are beginning to think about how you're gonna answer that, what's a very long answer, um, I'm gonna include in the notes with this podcast and webinar, I actually have links to all the different um, case documents that you may be referencing. So people who listen to this and think, well, I'd like to read that for myself, it's all gonna be there. I've already pulled it together. So Diala, run down the history of this case, what it's really about. And I'm just gonna say off the bat, you know, I read about this case, I, I was actually in Haifa when this broke in the news and I read about it in the paper and I'm like, well, this sounds like a pretty 
nutty legal theory, you know, of, 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 of accountability, why somehow U.S. campaign is somehow responsible for something that happened on the Gaza border. So I, I want you to just like break this all down and explain what is really going on here. Absolutely. I'll do my best and I'll try to not go on for too long because, as you said, um, the documents are all, you know, in addition to linking to them, they're all available on the CCR website. Um, but just first of all, big picture, this case is like a prime example. In addition to being nutty, it's a prime example of um, all, you know, all of the things that we have come to describe as lawfare sort of in one place. The use of the courts to target advocates for their advocacy, the specific focus on the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, um, and the use and abuse of U.S. counterterrorism um, laws and the whole framework uh, to be sort of weaponized against Palestinian advocates. Like these are sort of core features of the Lawfare Project, and they are all here evident in this case. Which, and we're uh, going to get into all of those later to the conversation. So I'm glad you mentioned them. Okay. Make a note. We're going to come back to you on that. So the case was first filed, as you noted, in 2019, um, and it's brought by the, a group of Israeli plaintiffs. The sort of lead plaintiff is the JNF. It's actually Karen Kayemetle Israel, which is the Israeli JNF. Um, Karen Kayemetle Israel is the sort of Hebrew word for Jewish National Fund, and that's um, a sort of a quasi-state entity in Israel. It, it is actually, it holds through um, through some legislation and some, you know, the, the way that it's structured actually holds lots of the lands of Israel in collaboration with the Israel Land um, uh, Administration, I think it's is the, the, the term. And, Israel, Israel Land Authority, the ILA. Authority, thank you, thank you. And uh, along with a group of other uh, dual citizens, so um, Israeli American plaintiffs, uh, they sued the US Campaign for Palestinian Rights for material support to terrorism and some other accompanying torts. Um, so the the entire complaint, which is sprawling, and you're free to go and look at it on our website, it's 62 pages, over 200 paragraphs, um, really rests on only two things. They only uh, claim two things that the U.S. campaign actually did. Um, so this is the basis of, of their theory of liability. One is that the U.S. campaign was a fiscal sponsor for the Boycott National Committee. And so the Boycott National Committee, for those who don't know, is, um, is the sort of coordinating body, um, NGO, for the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, which is, of course, a much broader thing. Um, and the second set of allegations of, the, of what the US campaign um, did were citing to the, the complaint sites to tweets and emails that the US campaign for Palestinian rights sent around to their supporters or out to the public. Um, in, in support of the rights of protesters in Gaza who were, who were marching to the Israel-Gaza border um, during the Great Return March and a series of marches, and we can get into that a little bit later. Um, but so those emails and those tweets are things like um, condemning the use of lethal, lethal force against unarmed protesters, um, you know, uh, uplifting the fact that the protesters are demanding the right of return, you know, so like core protected First Amendment activity, the exact kind of advocacy that, you know, you would expect an organization called the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights to be undertaking. Um, but based on these two things, they, you know, the rest of the complaint is a whole series of these attenuated linkages that they connect um, the, you know, through several frames, several degrees of removal, um, but trying to connect the US campaign for harms that allegedly flowed from the Great Return March. Um, to try to summarize it, and it's really uh, this convoluted set of allegations, but that the Boycott National Committee consists of, is a coalition, which itself is a coalition, uh, sorry, is, uh, which itself consists of, you know, multiple organizations, one of which is also a coalition of multiple organizations, um, uh, some of which are foreign terrorist organizations, and this is a key part of, you know, where the material support to terrorism law comes in, um, the, the foreign terrorist organizations are the Palestinian political parties, most of which have been, uh, political factions, most of which have been designated by the United States um, as, as terrorist organizations. So through these various linkages, they, they try to argue, um, not successfully, that the, that the U.S. campaign is somehow supporting terrorism and therefore liable for harms coming out of Gaza. There's plenty that's um, wrong with this theory. Uh, at any point, if you look at this kind of chain of connections, 
Um, we don't need to get into each one of those junctures, but uh, the judges did press uh, during oral arguments on appeal in January, the judges did press uh, the, the, the lawyers to sort of try to clarify what their theory of liability was. And um, I, I don't believe that they had a very good answer to that. And the main, uh, the thrust of the sort of totality of answers and arguments is that we need more discovery in order to clarify our theory, right? So that's, that's what gets at the sort of purpose and the real kind of um, thrust of these lawsuits is, is it's a form of harassment and that's at the core of what lawfare is. Um, the, the plaintiffs argued repeatedly uh, below at the district court level, as well as on appeal, that they need to be able to, you know, to, to get documents and, you know, subject the, the plaintiffs to all sorts of invasive discovery and questions and, um, and, and see their papers and their files and all of that to be able to properly litigate this case. And that's just not what the law um, allows them to do. There are, there's well-established precedent um, in U.S. law that protects litigants from this kind of um, intrusive and harassing uh, uh, lawsuits. These are these you know that there there are there's all sorts of protections that are there. But at, 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 as a threshold matter, and what was coming up here was at a motion to dismiss. You can't really pass this threshold. Um, this like. You, you can't really get discovery unless you've pled something. And here you just haven't pled enough. You haven't made the necessary connections to, to get the kind of want. But they repeatedly asserted that they needed that discovery and they wanted that discovery. Um, and you know, our perspective is that's sort of the, that that's the, the that was the main purpose for, for bringing this litigation and, and harassing um, the US campaign. So, so it sounds oh. like, I'm, sorry, go ahead. I can't really uh, also miss the second main claim that they had. Uh, th this wasn't on appeal, but it was at the lower level, which was um, citing to the US campaign's alleged participation in something called the Stop the JNF campaign and saying that their participation in that is, um, was interfering in their, in, is, is a tort basically. So suing them um, and the basis of their lawsuit is that you participated in this human rights campaign saying, that the, I mean, the, what they have in their complaint about the Stop the JNF campaign is that it's intended to end the role of the, J, the Jewish and in presumably taking over Palestinian land. Um, and so here we have, you know, the target of a human rights campaign suing the human rights advocates for their participation in a human rights campaign. Right, no, that, that's great. It's funny, listening to you, I, I love the word attenuated. For a long time, I tried to get people to buy into my phrase, which is six degrees of terrorist contamination, which I think is just too long to be catchy, but that's effectively what this is. It also sounds like you're effectively describing what is a theory of liability based on the need to find documents to, ba to back it up, which requires a fishing expedition, which generally is not something the courts like. I do want to mention one thing when I was pulling together documents, and I remember at the time the role of the International Legal Forum, which is an Israeli um, government linked NGO. Um, and I actually found the page they have announcing the case. And I just want to read it here and people I'll put the link with the notes. And it says for almost two years, the ILF, along with our partners, have been researching the links between the BDS, their term, and designated terrorist groups with the aim to stop the funding and delegitimize this vehemently anti-Semitic and exploitative movement. In November 2019, using this research, the ILF, which again is related directly to the Israeli government, has worked directly with them. The ILF prepared and recruited Karen Kayyem at Israel, together with a group of terror victims, in suing the U.S.-based charity campaign for Palestinian rights for 90 million in damages caused to property and environment, as well as emotional harm. So this is basically claiming credit for generating and organizing a lawsuit from an Israeli lawfare NGO that is directly related to the Israeli government that's been involved in other lawfare activities, which I just think is fascinating. Um, okay, so going forward. So um, I wanna come back to Ahmed. I'm gonna go back and forth between you. Feel free to jump in if you guys wanna expound on each other's answers. So Ahmed, as, as we've already been saying, this is a case of lawfare and we've seen lawfare before. We saw a lawsuit against the Carter Center and Norwegian People's Aid. And other. So I want you to talk about the way lawfare has been used and is being used to try to target and silence other grassroots movements, not just Palestinians, and how that experience is being applied to or applies to this case. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, first I'll just, uh, I'll say shout out to our attorneys. I think Diala and Maria and CCR and our entire team of attorneys uh, clearly help us to feel confident, you know, in these times where you have these these sorts of challenges that we didn't get into the mo the movement um, to be prepared to fight, right? When you're an activist or an organizer, you know that justice is on your side and you want to advocate for that change and shift that you um you know is going to be for the betterment of humanity, um, betterment of the world. And so this is something that I think the opposition is simply, um, you know, throwing everything at the at the wall and seeing what sticks. And it, it was a term, you know, I learned or some terminology I learned back in law school, which is just, you know, utilizing the law to figure out what mechanism can work for you and what can't. But in the meantime, if these mechanisms, you know, aren't successful in the courts achieving the demand um, that they'd like to seek, you know, it, it slows folks down um, from doing the organizing and the activism, you know, that we're here to do. I'm, I'm a Palestinian born in Palestine who has a U.S. citizenship that no longer wants to see tax dollars of mine and my friends and family members utilized um, in occupying and ethnically cleansing um, my people. And I have a constitutionally pr protected right um, to demand that. And guess what? There's a lot of people who feel the same way in this country. And so what the opposition is doing, what the right-wing forces are doing is trying to stifle the debate, trying to stifle the shift that we're witnessing in modern time. Um, and as it relates to other movements, uh, we've seen this um, with big oils attacks on water protectors and environmental, just, environmental justice advocates. I mean, of course, some of the folks that were defending uh, their lands against the Dakota pipelines, um, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of like this material support or, you know, allegations of terrorism, um, as opposed to recognizing them for what they are, advocates for justice and humanity and freedom and liberation, you know, things that, you know, uh, you know, most of us can really get behind. And so the best way to make sure uh, folks aren't able to get behind that message is by stifling that message, by muddying that message, by alleging things like terrorism or material support. Um, but you know what, we we know that um, justice is on our side. And again, we have great attorneys. And so we're not going to be, um, you know, dismayed by that. Thanks. And yeah, I, I was thinking of Dakota Pipeline when you were talking. Then I was also thinking about what's happening in Georgia right now, where you've got the environmental activists um, being hit with domestic terrorism laws, which is if people you read the complaints, some of those are, are quite extraordinary. I, I suspect lawyers are going to have a lot of fun with that, actually. Um, okay, so Diala, I want to come back to you as a as as counsel on this, but also someone who's been working on this. I know with a, a whole range of cases for a long time. You already mentioned material support at the at the root of anti-Palestinian lawfare in the U.S. is often the allegation of violations of U.S. laws regarding what is called, I'm putting it in quotes, material support for terrorism, which has, you know, you would think that has a specific meaning, but I guess courts have been interpreting it however they want. Can you explain about these material support laws? What are their origins in history? And and I since I know the answer to that a little bit, I'm going to say. And given their origins and history, how is how has it happened that they have been come they have come to be exploited, almost certainly I won't say exclusively, but certainly primarily, as a tool for targeting Palestinian activism and solidarity. Thanks, Laura. Um, so I think there's two stories about the origins and history. One is the one that we talk about a lot, which is, um, and it's connected, thank you for bringing up uh, the, the, the Georgia protests and the domestic terrorism, uh, the, the use of domestic terrorism practices here. So that story is, um, you know, material support to terrorism uh, was, was really kind of came online with the passage of the, um, and ETPA, um, Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. And that was a response to the Oklahoma City bombings, right? So in, this re in response to this act of white supremacist violence, um, Congress passed this sweeping law. And as uh, often is the case, the primary, um, the, 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 the folks who borne the brunt of the consequences of the things that became criminalized or uh, or the the, the changes in, in, in that legislation were communities of color, whether it's on the immigration front or in the criminal and on the criminal side of things. The material support to terrorism is one of the things that was in um, ETPA and that then has since been expanded 
Um, and so that is a criminal law, uh, criminalizes supporting material, uh, materially supporting terrorism, but that definition of material support is really broad and has been used and wielded um, in, in all sorts of ways. Uh, primarily, if you look at um, uh, the way the, the the primary sort of targets of the 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 deployment of this criminal law have been, you know, Muslim communities in a sort of post 9-11 world. Um, so we see, so so I guess the first part of the answer about the origins is like we see this kind of flip of laws that were intended to target white supremacist violence, then be primarily used to pass laws that um that have uh, a disproportionate effect on, on communities of color. But the other story behind um, the sort of US counterterrorism apparatus and the designation authority, the various kind of designation schemes that are out there, which connect to the material support to terrorism in order, because, because uh, a designated group needs to sort of come into play to, um, to, to, to kind of activate the, the, the terrorism, the material support provisions. Those have anti-Palestinian uh, discrimination at their roots. So if you look at the origins of a lot of these kind of designation schemes, Palestinians have always been the first ones on the lists, and then you see them kind of expand and grow. So I, I think that that's like an under, uh, under told aspect of this here, and it certainly is a big part of the story when you look at how, um, in many ways, this like next generation of material support to terrorism. Uh, it's not a next generation, it's been around for a long time, but uh, the, the sort of use of civil lawsuits by private actors to, um, to you know, drag folks into court. So that is a, is a piece, you know, material support to terrorism I was describing is a, is a criminal uh, statute. And then there is through its interplay with another uh, statute, you you can uh, you have uh, litigants can walk into court and uh, sue someone for uh, material support to terrorism, and that law was expanded and uh, supported by many uh, right wing and Zionist um, lobby groups to have to 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 also reach aiding and abetting material support to terrorism. That's a long way to say we now have an avenue through which private litigants, Zionist advocacy organizations, kind of to try to drag um, folks into court or threaten them with potential litigation in order to like chill their uh, support for Palestinian rights. And a core feature of this, of course, is the fact that most Palestinian political parties and factions are designated as foreign terrorist organizations. Um, including, you know, Hamas, which is a de facto government in Gaza, um, and all of the other, you know, political parties, basically. So it, it the, 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 the ability to kind of lodge these complaints, even if they have no kind of real core, but just simply kind of trying to weave these kinds of connections uh, with multiple degrees of separation and sometimes no actual degrees of like, no, you know, there's like not even like a, a through line there, which is the problem with the analogy of six degrees is because it's not like there's actually even six degrees. Um, well, but that, yeah. that's, that's a really good point. Thank you. Yeah, that, that, that it's, it's hard to like think about messaging around these questions. I, I was thinking the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, because at the end of the day, I have no connection to Kevin Bacon, and yet somebody can do a six degrees, which ends up being like both of your last names appear in the first 10 letters of the alphabet kind of thing. They're like, that's the connection. Yeah, yeah, we, we can keep working on how to how to talk about this. But um, ultimately, okay, yeah, let me, just, let me ask you, I mean, sorry. So, the what you're describing sounds to me as a non-lawyer a lot like slap litigation. The, the 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 these are slap suits which are strategic litigation for the purposes of stopping public participation. I don't remember what the word stand for, but I mean, is that is that a big piece of this? Yeah, absolutely. And and you see it in other contexts too. I mean, this is what is deployed against Palestinians and increasingly other groups because of the material support to terrorism provisions and how it interplays with where are folks who are designated like operating. But um, as Ahmed was saying, in, in the US, you know, there's all sorts of like use of RICO and other kinds of theories of liability with other kind of core crimes that aren't necessarily material support to terrorism. Um, and those are all slap suits.
right? So the sort of the sort of lawsuits that have a chilling effect because even if you're going to win them, the person who's filing them wins whether whether they win the case or not. They win by making your life miserable and costing you money and reputational harm, and and forcing you to to focus your energies not on the work you are supposed to be doing, but on fighting the litigation. Um, which is a good segue to my next question for Ahmed. So clearly, the goal, I think. I don't think it's it's I don't even think the people behind the litigation would disagree. The goal of this lawfare against the US campaign is to weaken or destroy US campaign as an organization and to undermine and delegitimize and if possible put an end to the work of the US campaign. So that's the goal. I, again, I don't think even the the people bringing these cases would disagree with what I just said. So bearing in mind that if that's the goal, what is the actual impact on the work of the campaign? Well, I mean, you know, first you were kind of uh touching on it uh with a couple of your comments is a, there's a personal impact you know that you know the the days when that lawsuit um was served uh the folks that were on staff at time you know kind of had a gut check moment um they kind of had a moment of okay um what do we do to respond you know is is my uh job you know is my organization going to be shut down will i have a job uh you know what what is this going to do for my reputation right you know um one of the interesting things is like it, you know, we we're talking about lawfare today, but even when you think about like websites like Canary Mission, you know, I've had family members and friends reach out to me and say like, how could they say these things about you? You know, how can they say these things and make these allegations about you? I know you're you're fighting for what's right. I know you're, you know, fighting for justice. Um, and so there's a, a huge personal impact that you know the folks that were in the organization at the time had felt. Um, and and the folks that you know are in the organization now you know have felt but you know th there's also like charity navigator some of these you know websites that we um, have our information around so that donors can know that they're donating to a trusted source um, you know some of these websites then had to have you know sort of notices that you know we're being um, sued because of xyz and you know so at times you know it these these um, allegations, these lawsuits can strike at the confidence of, of donors and supporters. You know, that that's that's some of what we were worried about. But, you know, I have to say that because I think, one, the U.S. campaign has a righteous and just mission, and two, because our people on the ground in Palestine here in the U.S., our supporters all across the U.S. are so committed um, that they weren't swayed. And so we actually, you know, while we were worried, you know, what will this do for you know, our relationships and our ability to engage the Hill, for instance, or our ability, you know, to fundraise. Um, what we've seen is folks have really uh, just recommitted to the support of the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights, uh, to, to recommitted to that cause. And, and I think last year was a huge testament to that. That, that's really heartening. I, I was actually thinking about the U.S. campaign. There was a, a report that came out a few weeks ago that one of the U.S. organizations that acts as a fiscal sponsor for some groups doing work on the ground in both Israel and Palestine, um, there was a, a letter that had been sent to the Treasury claiming that they're violating U.S. material support laws for funding two organizations, neither of which is on any OFAC list. And it's not the first time they've done this. I mean, I think the first time they sent a letter was like three years ago. And these organizations are still not on any OFAC list. And I'm thinking, I wonder how much pressure this organization is now going to come under. Um, and they work worldwide. Essentially, what they're being told is we're going to continue to impose the most vicious um, reputational harm on you if you continue to work in Israel-Palestine. So you can either keep doing it and fight and, and refocus all your energies on defending yourselves, or you can drop work in Israel-Palestine. And 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 I I think it's just it's it's a horrible thing to it's a horrible position to put um, groups doing good work in. Um, but I'm heartened by your answer. Um, okay, so I want to sort of look sort of more broadly. The so we've we've already touched on a lot of this, and you mentioned Canary Mission Ahmed. You know the lawsuits, slap suits, whatever you want to call them are one of multiple tactics we're seeing to dissent, to silence dissent. And you also mentioned um, Diala Rico suits. These are essentially claiming an illegal conspiracy to stop business. This has been used, this was used in the Dakota Pipeline case, I believe. Um, so Diala, can you talk about what other kinds of legal lawfare tactics you're seeing, just a little more detail, and how groups like CCR are pushing back on this? 
Sure. Um, well, even just with regards to, and, and you referenced some of these, but in the context of material support, like the use or the deployment of material support to terrorism in the U.S.'s overbroad counterterrorism framework, it there's all sorts of ways in which that's deployed that aren't actually lawsuits. And so it's worth just noting that. You mentioned letters to Treasury, um, you know, efforts to get groups um, tax status revoked, um, but even letters to the Department of Justice, you know, flinging around these same accusations with no merit, but uh, as Ahmed saying, you know, these things turn up on the internet, they get into the eco chamber of these right wing uh, websites, and then that turns up if you Google search someone. So all of that is kind of um, used to sort of cast a cloud over Palestinian advocacy. And so it's really important to be clear about how um, that is a project. That is, um, that is, uh, it's baseless. There's no actual kind of legal harm that can flow from most of the stuff. It's just casting things. You know, the word terrorism has a way of like sucking the air out of the room and um, really scaring people, whether it's potential funders, whether it's college grads who want to go into the profession, you know, that whole thing. So that's, that's one way we see it. Um, we regularly get calls from folks who aren't sure whether or not they should be engaging in um, whether it's funding or, or being involved in, you know, a campaign or something because they, they'll read these kinds of accusations online and they want to know the scope of their potential liability. So that is itself potentially a chilling effect. That said, um, I, I think that there's like two sides to that story because I think it's intending to chill. I don't know that we're, we're only seeing, you know, growing um, uh, movement for Palestinian rights. And I, th and I think that people are um, able to kind of navigate this reality and still effectively do their advocacy. And that is what our organization and other groups like Palestine Legal, um, as well as other legal organizations and individual lawyers are sort of just trying to do is like create that space, tell folks about their rights, make sure that nobody, you know, is like actually facing legal jeopardy and, and allowing people to kind of continue doing that activism. Other kinds of um, tactics we've seen, and some of my colleagues have been involved in decades litigation, um, uh, uh, targeting, you know, the, the Olympia Food Co-op is a good example. That case, um, after passing a BDS resolution, they were sued, um, and I think that it was on procedural grounds. It was, you know, saying something about the way that that BDS resolution passed and they were dragging to court for 10 years. Um, ultimately, they were, you know, we prevailed, um, but that was still a, a decade long litigation. Um, so that's time, that's resources, that's movement resources. Uh, there are plenty of other cases. And, and, it's, and it's people's lives. I mean, for 10 years, this hangs over you. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, we see, uh, I think I mentioned folks trying to get um, to like activate law enforcement and, you know, get the FBI to show up at a college student's door because they are being, uh, they're receiving accusations, maybe anonymously or whoever knows how that that person is involved in, um, you know, in, in some uh some terrorism, obviously with, without much there, but even simply getting that door knock, right, can send a chilling effect. So there, yeah, I, I can't even list all of the ways in which we're seeing this. And I think you also track them very closely. So you should feel free to add here. Um, but it's been a big and growing part of our work as a legal organization. Um, and again, Palestine Legal is also doing a lot of this sort of important, like advising and, and, and providing resources to groups because it's, it, it's a, it's a reality uh, and it's a reality that we have to accept as a part of doing the work, um, but there are resources to, to, to provide that support. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's a constantly mutating reality, right? So every time you sort of get a handle on one piece, something else comes up. There's a lot of, there's an entire ecosystem of organizations out there that are devoted to constantly innovating new ways to go after Palestine activism. I would say, speaking to you all as part of the Palestine movement, that, that this is a great compliment, right? They're clearly very, very worried about what you're doing. 
Um, but you know, Ahmed coming to you and just picking up on something that Diala just said, you know, she talked about you have to figure out ways to just navigate this reality and do what you're doing. So, I mean, you've talked, I think, quite quite passionately and compellingly about the work of the campaign and the commitment of the grassroots that's continued to support you. But how do you navigate this reality? How do Palestinian activists and allies push back and resist lawfare and keep doing the work? I mean, any any insights? Yeah, I mean, the first is, you know, we have to be honest, there's an assumption of risk here. You know, we know we know that it's been quite unpopular for some time in this country to engage in the sort of advocacy efforts that we have, but there's been a shift. And, you know, I, I like to reference the fact that when my father talks about his activism in his college days, you know, it, it used to be that there were protests, you know, against uh, the Palestinian speakers being on campus, you know, the 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 right wing pro-Israel forces had such a command over campuses even, you know, that we're, we weren't able to have that debate. But now it's actually the opposite. You know, our side has won over the debate so well um, that the protests are going on on the other side and Palestinian speakers and the Palestinian cause is being met, um, you know, with, with love and support and community, you know, um, no matter where we've been able to go. So I think one thing is to, to depend and lean on the experts in the field, like Diala just really broke it down for us the way she's broke it down for so many of us in the movement before. And so like, we want to continue to support organizations like CCR and Pal Legal. And so for us as U.S. campaign, any opportunity we get to talk about the work that our lawyers, our advocates, legal experts in our field have done is a great moment for us to uplift the movement because um, this is real community driven work and it's really uh, responding to a need. It's responding to a challenge that the movement um, you know, has had to deal with in these decades. And so what we want to do as a movement is continue to support the organizations that are doing the work, the experts that are leading in the work. And, and if if their goals are to eliminate the U.S. campaign, you know, then that means that, again, we're being pretty effective with what we're doing. We haven't accomplished our goal yet, but we can see that, you know, um, like Dr. King said, the, the moral arc of the universe is bending towards justice. And so we can see that on the horizon. And what we need to do is just keep pushing a little bit harder, keep pushing a little bit longer, um, and, and justice will prevail. So that was a great mic drop place to end this, except I'm not ready to end it. So I apologize for continuing after your great, that was just like perfect ending statement. So for my listeners, our listeners, I apologize, but I got two more questions. I'll try so, to say something better later. <laughs> so yeah, just, just think about a really good other Dr. King quote that you can use because that's really powerful. Um, I want to sort of zoom out for a second and, you know, something... Certainly, Diala and I have been talking a lot about since October 2021 is the assault on Palestinian human rights defenders on the ground with Israel's designation of six, actually seven Palestinian human rights groups as terrorist organizations. And we're seeing increasingly violent attacks. There's always the structural violence of occupation. If people don't know what that means, you should look it up. It's really important. It's the ongoing um, violence that is every day and it is inherent in the system that maintains um, the occupation and the you know unequal uh, laws and regulations inside the Green Line and all of that. So that's all happening, right? Repression on human rights defenders, repression on Palestinians on the ground, and also a, an uptick, I would say, in trying to delegitimize and attack Palestinians for going to the UN, for going to the ICC, ICJ, all of that. So this is, I guess I want, I want to know if either of you, and I'm thinking Diala first, if you want, where do you place the lawfare in the United States against groups like US Campaign in that broader um, that 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 sort of broader picture of the the effort to delegitimize and clamp down on protests writ large, or Palestinian voices writ large. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I actually see that there is a direct uh, through line between uh, what you're referring to. So, you know, Israel's recent designation of six Palestinian civil society organizations as terrorist, um, and some and the U.S. campaign case. And that through line is that. You know, we all know that that the Israeli government, as well as a host of um, you know Zionist organizations like NGO Monitor, have spent years trying to build the case that these groups, you know, have an affiliation with terrorism. And the audience there isn't the Israeli, you know, legal system; it's the American legal system, right? So they have tried um, 
desperately to try to get the U.S. to designate these groups or to take steps against these groups. You know, we've, we saw letters to the Department of Justice during the Trump administration when they thought they would have the best chance at, at succeeding, um, and, and, and they couldn't. And so they just went ahead and did what they couldn't do, um, what they couldn't get the Americans or the Europeans to do explicitly. They just went ahead and did it. Um, and, and so you know, what they're hoping to achieve and what and, and what we warn uh, against now as we talk about, you know, the dismal response by the U.S. administration to the Israeli designations. Um, what they're hoping to, to, to achieve is that by designating them under Israeli law, that will somehow trigger something in the U.S. system. And they're not wrong to an extent because our, the U.S. counterterrorism apparatus is fundamentally broken. Um, there are all sorts of problems. And one of the main features is that it gives individuals, it gives low-level agents a lot of discretion. So if you're like at the border, for example, and you're some TSA or CPP agent, um, or you're an FBI agent that's like tasked with, you know, reviewing files, and you just, you know, see a news article or Google and you land on the NGO monitor website that says Israel has designated this group as terrorist and you don't know any better, you're going to then, you know, do what is significantly within your authority, right? Stop and question somebody, deny them entry to the United States, revoke somebody's visa. Um, all of these things can kind of be unleashed uh, through this process of, of, of just like smearing somebody as terrorists, right? So even if the US government does not, and it has not, and it will not designate these Palestinian human rights groups as terrorists, we still have all this like room for harm. And that's really what we need to be focusing on and why it's important that the US State Department say something, right? But the through line is the same kinds of tools that, um, and, and, and the, same, the same kind of like theory around the, the US campaign case is what's at play in the, uh, the sort of the, you know, the, the Israeli designation of these groups. Um, it's the material support to terrorism laws. It's the fact that anything that is like described as terrorism lends itself to these really broad theories of, of guilt by association. Um, and it's being, you know, it's, it's Palestinians have, uh, have, have been smeared as terrorism, as terrorists for a very long time. If it's not terrorism, it's, you know, and you've talked a lot about anti-Semitism being these sort of other piece of the story. Um, but yeah, and so I think we have a lot of work to do here in the US to ensure that um, the kind of counterterrorism apparatus doesn't get sort of further abused. Although I'm, you know, I, I, don't, I'm, I, I certainly am not one to sort of say that we have all of these like robust procedural protections and the system is great. We just need to make, get it to work right. We have critiques of, you know, the, the way that these laws are inherently um, intended to be abused in these ways, intended to be used selectively. You know, they're 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 intentionally broad and lend lend themselves to kind of these like various interpretations and and discretionary uses. Um, so we have these critiques, um, and that's why we really need to be pushing for um, a more kind of affirmative uh, position from the U.S. administration vis-a-vis -vis the designation of Palestinian human rights advocates. Um, terrorists. Yeah, I, I think you that, that through that that through line is 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 when you the way you explain it, it's very very clear. I I find myself casting about thinking about the the case that was brought against the Carter Center where they were accused of material support for terror for hosting a I believe it was an uh, an event on on nonviolence and protest or whatever and and allegedly Hamas people sat at the table so they were they they were part of the the public that attended. And the case argued that they it was material support for terror by giving them cookies, water, and a plate and a platform. Um, like, like they were there, they were allowed to be there. Um, but it, it's 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 so um, it's I will argue I'll say that it's both encouraging that these cases are so weak, but it is also daunting because as soon as you throw in the word terrorism, if you're university administrators and someone sends you a letter, you know, because they want to host one of these someone associated with a Palestinian NGO, which has now been designated a terrorist by the Israeli organization by the Israeli government, suddenly you have a whole different set of concerns. And some of them are actual litigation. You might be you might actually be violating the law. And some of it is just the reputational harm, is that chilling effect of I don't want to bring in this headache. Um, and it's just it's it's constant. Um, Ahmed, do you do you want to talk about that that issue and what's happening on the Israeli side, or do you want to go on to the next question? No, what Diala said. 
<laughs> okay, so I, I want to actually this my my goal with this last question was actually to give you a chance to give your mic drop. Um, I don't know if there's something else you want to say. For Dial, I want you to come back a little bit to where we started. And you mentioned the JNF piece of it. I just want you to take a little time to just explain this further because you have a case which is going forward. And I actually listened to the last oral arguments, which were fascinating. Folks should listen to them. I'll have a link um, because really it's just so clear that this is the fishing expedition piece of it. And what is your theory of liability? Well, we don't know yet. We're hoping we'll come up with one if we get enough information. But the original case also was focused on this idea like, because you have a case against the JN, you have a case that's calling out the JNF, therefore that must be illegal and terrorist. And it's just, I think, difficult for people to even wrap their heads around. Can you take a moment and talk about that a little bit for why specifically the US campaign is also being targeted here? Uh, Ahmed, do you want to start? Yeah, yeah, what, whatever you prefer, um, Diallo or Laura. Oh, so. uh, oh wait, you, you have the mic drop, so I should, I should just yeah. go. I, I want to give him the, the last question, have him talk a little bit about the campaign. So I want to start with this. Yeah. Go ahead, Diallo. No, I'm not that good at the mic drop, so I'll stick to the technicalities here. I mean, they, um, so this, the, yeah, so uh, uh, there's all sorts of, um, I'm trying to figure out where to start, but- well, Explain the Stop the JNF campaign first. Stop the JNF campaign. Um, so they have, the Stop the JNF campaign is a, 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 an advocacy campaign. And I'm, I, I can just talk about what it they say it is in, in the complaint um, because I don't wanna comment about like what it is out there in the world. Um, but I, I do think that there are sort of multiple efforts to call out the Jewish National Fund's involvement in the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, um, uh, you know, both, both on both sides of the green line. So the Jewish National Fund, uh, it ha has possesses or controls um, significant swaths of land in Israel and it administers them under discriminatory um, terms, right? So only makes them accessible to, uh, like as part of its sort of mandate has sort of like all sorts of Jewish only provisions. Um, and so, you know, in addition to having benefited from Israel's discriminatory use of absentee property laws, which, you know, uh, uh, took transferred lands from Palestinian possession before the Nakba to um, you know, Jewish only hands, right? And so JNF has a role in that, in that process of sort of um, ethnic cleansing. Uh, and, and this is something that you know, many historians um, and I, Iris Braverman actually has an excellent book about the use of trees, um, uh, the, the, how, how the JNF has sort of you know, one one way to talk about it is greenwashing, but you know, use the a tree planting project to sort of control uh, swaths of Palestinian uh, land and historic Palestine. So on on both sides. I'll, I'll put some links in the notes with this this call um, about that. I'm just looking at a headline from Haaretz, which says the headline is from 2021: Israel recruited the Jew recruited the Jewish National Fund to secretly buy Palestinian land for settlers. Here's another one. This was a scoop from Axios. Jewish National Fund plans to pour millions into expanding West Bank settlements. There are tons of these headlines. And there's also headlines about Jewish community in the United States being unhappy about this with groups like Trua leading efforts against it. So yeah, this wasn't, this is not a, 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 a this is not a niche issue, right? Yes, so um, it's, it's it's absolutely not an issue. And, and as a result, there's been sort of over the decades, um, Palestinian and other solidarity uh, activist campaigns to raise this concern, right? So the Stop the JNF campaign is sort of in that in, in, in that vein. Um, and so the specific, you know, the allegation around that campaign is that, um, is that it is a, a tortious interference with the JNF's business relationships, right? And this idea that the U.S. campaign has animosity towards the the Jewish National Fund. Um, again, here to me, what this looks like is a target of a human rights campaign suing the human rights campaigners um, to uh, uh, you know because they didn't like the fact that they're campaigning. Uh, this would be the equivalent of like if someone started a stop the NRA campaign and they were sued for for having a campaign that said stop the NRA, right? That, that that's effectively what this piece of it is. Exactly. And um, core kind of material, uh, you know, classic slap suit. Uh, and, and again, this wasn't on appeal. 
uh, they only appealed some of the claims, uh, but but it is telling um, and it really does like complete the story of what this lawsuit is about. Great. Okay, so last thing, Ahmed, you're going to get the last word and here. I want you to talk about, I mean, you, you already talked about your why you think they're targeting you and the work you're doing, but I want, I want you to talk a little bit more about the, the campaign's uniqueness in the U.S. space. I mean, if that quote that I gave off the top, the, the International Legal Forum, ILF's, you know, going after, try, trying to end BDS by coming after you, it sounds like, you know, can you, you talk about what you're doing, what is unique about the campaign's role? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks um, for allowing me to you know, end off uh, our conversation this way. Uh, the U.S. campaign uh, for Palestinian rights believes that advocating for justice for all people is the only way forward. Uh, we're going to continue to struggle together towards collective liberation. This is a multi-generational fight for justice. So our grandparents, our parents' generations led this work and are continuing to help us build this movement. This is also an internationalist fight for justice. Um, that the U.S. campaign is a part of. This is an anti-colonial and anti-apartheid fight, uh, fight for justice that, that we're a part of at the U.S. campaign. And we're clear about, you know, what we work for, uh, freedom, justice, inequality for the Palestinian people in a world without racism and oppression. We're going to continue to build towards a world in which the Palestinian people and all people can be free. Um, if that sounds good to you. Please visit our website at US campaign, uscpr.org. Um, follow our social media at USCPR. Um, join up with the local organization and let's get moving towards justice. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Palestine will be free. So that was a good mic drop, well done. I'm gonna have links, the links that you just gave orally, I'll have those in the notes along with everything else. I do wanna make one comment here because as we got so into the minutia, I think maybe it got, got lost and I don't know if, if Diallo wants to comment, but so far the US campaign is winning, right? You guys won, you, there was a motion to dismiss, that motion was challenged by the, the original plaintiffs and that was that that failed it was dismissed by the by the first court it's now there's been an appeal there were briefs filed with that appeal that actually had oral arguments a couple of weeks ago which again i commend to people you should listen to them it's fascinating i'm not a lawyer and it was still fascinating and now we're waiting for the results of that appeal as we speak i don't know if there's any sense of the timeline for that but that's that's where this sits right now so did i get that right that's perfect Excellent. And there will be links to all those documents so people can read them for themselves. Um, so we're going to end it here. This was fabulous. Thank, thank you so much, Diella. Thank you so much, Ahmed, for joining me today. I want to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode, which was long. I'm sorry to interrupt you. You can, you can thank me at the end. Um, thanks, thanks for tuning in for this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Um, you don't have to thank me because really it's our pleasure. Um, please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, uh, for more content on in Palestine and Israel and the pressing issues of the day. And make sure you subscribe to stay up to date to the podcast. We have multiple podcasts every week. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify and then you can watch the videos on our website or on YouTube because uh, we do release these as both videos and podcasts. So with that, um, any last words, Diala Ahmed? Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. It was a pleasure for me. And we're going to sign off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Bye.